Hello again, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and as always, really excited that you're here studying with me today. We're going to be talking about something that's really important to me, and I felt very compelled to share with you, and that is the concept of trauma-informed care. Before we jump into this, let's take a quick minute for a listener shout out to Brooke, who writes to say this. I wanted to write because I just passed boards after graduating from an accelerated entry master's program. I have young kids at home and completed prerequisites and my program through COVID times when childcare was very unreliable and studying often had to be done in the margins of my life. Your podcasts were essential for studying during chores, commutes, and walks. I used study sesh for the final push to study for the NCLEX. Your clear and well-organized resources were such a huge boon. I can't thank you enough for all you do. Thank you, Brooke, for taking the time to share your feedback and your experience with the podcast and study sesh. Congratulations on your accomplishments. If you want to learn more about study sesh that Brooke mentioned specifically, I'll put a link to that in the episode notes. So what is trauma-informed care? When you first hear this term, it might at first sound like we're talking about caring for patients who've been in a trauma, like someone who's in a trauma ICU, who's been in a car accident or something like that. It's actually a much deeper topic and affects so many more patients than you may at first realize. Trauma-informed care is an approach to practice that strives to understand how past traumas affect why our patients do or don't do what is needed in order to manage their health optimally. This concept of trauma-informed care is gaining a ton of traction and being extensively studied in healthcare and in education and public health. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration defines it in this way. Individual trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. So when we look at trauma through that lens, it's pretty easy to see how it can affect so many of our patients and maybe even ourselves. So trauma-informed care enables us as healthcare practitioners to support our patients who have experienced trauma in whatever form it takes for them. We do this through the interventions we provide and how we evaluate why an intervention did or did not produce the desired outcome. It also plays a significant role in how and what we teach our patients. In short, providing trauma-informed care brings the whole patient fully into their treatment plan, and we cannot have patient-centered care without it. So why is trauma-informed care essential? Exposure to trauma is actually so much more prevalent than we might first assume. Surveys routinely show that more than half the respondents report trauma in their past history. Traumatic experiences and chronic stress 
that is caused by those traumatic experiences affect that HPA axis, the limbic system, and neurotransmitter dysregulation. Altogether, this is a significant amount of strain on the body, which can lead to physical manifestations as well. Individuals who have experienced trauma are more likely to suffer serious consequences, including heart disease, hypertension, depression, substance abuse, social isolation, and shorter life expectancy. Additionally, trauma can affect a patient's ability to get routine and preventive care. Many times, these patients are labeled non-compliant, and instead of recognizing the trauma, addressing the barriers that it creates and providing true patient-centered care, these patients often just get lost in the healthcare system. The result is that they avoid seeking care or they abandon treatment prematurely. Not only does this increase healthcare costs, it has a direct correlation with poor patient outcomes. So one of the things that's really important is screening for past trauma. How do we do that? A key element to successfully screening for past trauma and implementing trauma-informed care is to foster an environment based on trust so the patient feels really safe sharing their experiences. So we have some tools that we can use to do this. One tool that you may see is the Stressful Life Events Screening Questionnaire. This is a 20-question tool assessing exposure to traumatic events. It asks about the individual's experience with things like natural disasters, man-made disasters like a plane crash, life-threatening illnesses, death of someone close to them, and being a victim of violence. Another screening tool is the Trauma Assessment for Adults, which is a 17-item assessment tool that asks the individual about potentially traumatic events using a yes-no format. This tool asks, in general, about the same types of things as the Stressful Life Events tool, but also specifically mentions military combat or war zone experience. Now, the New Jersey Division of Mental Health and Addiction Services suggests introducing the screening tool in a way that fosters an environment of safety and trust, and they provide a script for this, which I am going to share with you here. And you can, you know, I don't expect you to take this verbatim, but the spirit of it and the compassion behind it. So here's how it goes. It is common for people to have experienced stressful and upsetting events, even if those events happened to you a long time ago. Those events can still affect how a person thinks and feels today. Things that happen to us can affect how we react to other people and situations many years later. People who have experienced a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events or certain kinds of stress over time can have different needs than people who have not. Because of this, it is helpful for us to be aware of your past experiences and the way in which those events may still affect you. This questionnaire asks about many different types of stressful life events. We would like you to answer the following questions on your own to see if any of these things have happened to you. These kinds of events can be frightening or distressing to almost everyone. I'm here to help you if you have any questions or need assistance with completing this questionnaire, and I will stay with you afterward if you like. 
So as you can see, we're not just handing someone a questionnaire with all these traumas on it and walking out of the room, right? Because that would not be providing trauma-informed care because even reading about those things could be upsetting or triggering for that individual. We want to provide compassion. We want to provide warmth. We want to provide caring, understanding, and support. So what does trauma-informed care entail? Some key tenements of a trauma-informed healthcare system are acknowledging the widespread impact of trauma, recognizing the signs and symptoms of trauma in patients and their families, and also in staff. Individuals and those who support them, we want to recognize that they are involved in the planning, the implementation, and the evaluation of the treatment plan. These people are very important. Another tenement of trauma-informed healthcare is that staff speak respectfully and in a non-judgmental way when inquiring about past trauma. Also, recognizing the impact of all types of trauma and that the weight of that trauma is what the patient states it is. This can include being a victim of violence or witnessing a natural disaster. If it traumatized the individual, it is a trauma. Another tenement is recognizing that trauma can be acute, and it can also be ongoing, and providing care and services in a way that does not re-victimize the individual. Additionally, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has identified six key principles of a trauma-informed approach to healthcare in their resource guide, which I will link to in the episode notes. These principles are safety, trustworthiness and transparency, peer support, collaboration, empowerment, and cultural, historical, and gender issues. Let's talk briefly about each one. So the principle of safety, we want to ensure that patients, families, and staff always feel physically and psychologically safe. Trustworthiness and transparency. When we abide by this principle, Decisions are made with transparency, with the goal of building and maintaining trust among all those involved and affected. Peer support means that individuals with shared experiences are integrated into the organization as a way to establish safety, garner a sense of hope, and build trust. Collaboration means the organization recognizes the important role that each individual can play and places an importance on the development of partnerships. Empowerment means that we recognize and build on patient and staff strengths, which includes a core belief in the power of resiliency and the ability to heal from trauma. And then cultural, historical, and gender issues, we want to move beyond biases and move beyond stereotypes based on ethnicity, sexual orientation, religion, age, geography, etc., and recognize the impact of historical trauma as well. So how can we provide trauma-informed care? So in addition to fostering an environment of safety and an environment of trust with your patient, here are some examples for how you could provide trauma-informed care. Simply explaining what you're doing when working with patients in language that is easy to understand. This creates an environment of transparency and trust. 
It's also important to let the patient know when you're going to touch them before beginning your assessment or your intervention. Especially if this involves touching a part of their body that they may be uncomfortable with. And you can also say, if at any time you're uncomfortable, please let me know and I'll stop the assessment. This also garners a relationship of trust and safety. You want to explain the reason behind sensitive questions that you need to ask and ensure the patient that their privacy is always protected. Another important component is practicing cultural humility which seeks to understand a culture rather than making broad assumptions over what you think you know. Another great way to provide trauma-informed care is be aware of your body language so as to not convey an intimidating demeanor or aggressive demeanor. You can make sure that you greet patients, greet families warmly and with sincerity. This is going to make them feel welcome and safe. Ask about preferred names. Ask about preferred pronouns. And collaborate with patients on their plan of care. Ask open-ended questions to verify understanding and seek solutions. If a past trauma is impeding their ability to seek care, you can help them identify solutions. So let's say you had a patient who tells you they were victimized in a parking garage. And now they have to go once a week to get their blood levels checked because they take Coumadin and the clinic that they're going to has a parking garage and there's nowhere else to park. Well, that patient may likely avoid going to that appointment because it re-victimizes them. So maybe you can work with the patient to locate another clinic. That's what we mean by trauma-informed care and bringing the whole patient into their plan of care. There is a lot more to this topic. I wanted to just touch on it with you today, hopefully pique your interest in exploring more. I will include some links in the episode notes to some other resources that are really fantastic. And I'd love to hear from you if you've been practicing this and trying to instill it in your day-to-day -day interactions with patients. I'd love to hear how that goes. So now let's take a little detour and talk about a little bit of listener mail I've received recently. So one email that I received was asking about pupil assessment using a pen light. An LPN had written to me to ask about how to perform this assessment because she said, whenever I do it, I don't see any constriction. So what I advised is what she was doing was turning the lights off and then shining the light. So if you're going to turn the lights off, you do want the light to be, you know, you don't want a brightly lit room. So if you're turning the lights off, give the individual's eyes time to accommodate or react to that dimmer light, right? So turning the lights down, give the pupils time to dilate before you start your assessment. And then using your pin light, you want to make sure that they're not focusing in on the pin light itself because focusing in is going to cause constriction before you even turn the light on. So ask them to look at something kind of far away as you do your assessment and then turn on your light and shine it for about three seconds and observe for that pupillary response. And then another tip is instead of just turning it on and shining it right into their eye, turn it on and then move the light up so you come up from the bottom. So it's a little bit more of a gentle approach and observe for that constriction. And then 
Another question that comes up a lot is students that are graduating asking if they should go ahead and get their advanced certification in ACLS. So usually your employer is going to pay for that, right? So having that on your resume probably isn't going to be a deal breaker between you and another candidate because they're expecting to send everyone to ACLS anyway. They have to send every employee to it every two years. So it's not like they're going to look at that and go, oh, we're going to save $200 by hiring this person over this person. What gets you the job is going to be more your eagerness to learn, your great attitude, your desire to be a compassionate patient advocate, a valued member of the team, your professionalism, your ability to communicate communicate, to present yourself well. Those are the things that are really going to matter. Now, if you were going to get a course on your own, the one that I think that might be the most useful would be an EKG interpretation course, because they may not offer that. They may just have a test very early in your employment to say, hey, make sure that you know how to do these EKGs. So if you're shaky on that, that might be a program to look into. I certainly took an EKG reading course after I graduated or close to the time that I graduated. I found it to be supremely helpful. So if you're looking at spending a little extra effort on something like that, that could be the way to go. So thank you again so very much for joining me here today. I've had a blast talking with you as always. And if you're interested in learning more about Study Sesh that I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, that is an a podcast. It's auditory learning. It's different than this podcast. This podcast is me talking you through concepts. Study Sesh is a way to review and learn in a different way. So most of the episodes are what I call pod quizzes, where I ask a question, pause for a little bit, give you time to answer, and then you respond to the universe or whoever's in the car with you or talking to yourself while you're out on a walk. And in that way, you're kind of doing flashcards, but we're using our ears to do that. So if you like doing flashcards, but you're sick of sitting at your desk, sick of looking at a screen, sick of writing them out, this could be a way to do that. So most of the episodes are pod quizzes. There's also drills. There are some things in nursing school that you just have to drill into your brain, like the blood flow pathway through the heart, all the cranial nerves and what they do. And we drill those over and over and over again so that basically you're saying them along with me and memorizing those things. Now, there aren't a ton of things to memorize in nursing school because you're you're spending a lot of your energy on understanding how concepts connect, but there are some things that you just have to remember. So that's what we do in drills. And then we have case studies where we talk through a case study about a patient and then power hour is where it's like this but I go way deeper and so the power hour episodes do a deep dive into a very important topic and come with a study guide so yeah study sesh is super cool I'll put a link in the episode notes so that you can check that out And then I am getting close to being finished with the app. I don't know how long you've been hanging out with me, but I've been talking about this app for a while. We've had some challenges with the development, but we're almost finished with that. And that should be up. I'm hoping it's up. Gosh, if it's not up by the end of the year, I'm going to cry. So keep an eye out for that as well. And then next week, I'll see you. We're going to be diving into disequilibrium syndrome which is something that when I was a student, I, you know, I heard about, but I just, for some reason, just, it just went over my head and I just didn't really understand it. And even working as a nurse, I'd be like, now what? And I want you to feel more confident. So now that I've gone through 
organizing and creating this episode for you. I totally get it. And I want you to have that same feeling of confidence. So join me back here next week to talk about disequilibrium syndrome. And as always, I really appreciate when you rate and review the podcast. So take a quick minute to do that. I read every single one. It means the world to me. And if you want to make my day, that's one way to do it. See you soon. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. 